If you would, grab a Bible and turn with me to Psalm 66. Psalm 66, if you're using a pew Bible, you can find it on page 505. If you're new to the scriptures, the big number is the psalm number, so 66. And then as we go through the scriptures, we'll point to verses. Those are the small numbers, and that'll be where you can find... Uh, the thing that we're looking at at that time. So let's pray and ask for God's help. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask you now to reveal yourself. We thank you that you've taken the time to speak and to write and to preserve and to translate your words to us. And so, God, we pray now as we hear it that you would open our hearts and eyes to you and your son, Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. The worship of Jesus is not for Christians alone. The worship of Jesus is central to world history and the purpose of life itself. What's the purpose of life? Well, one very important way to answer that is to worship Jesus. Psalm 66 is inviting the whole earth to this worship. Yet people today often think of worship as a sort of religious conquest. You might be one of those people. That thinking comes in a variety of examples. You have your own ways of thinking that or saying it, but sometimes you hear people say, I'm not searching for anything. I'm all set. Or, no thank you, I'm more spiritual than religious. Or in the demeaning idea that concepts of worshiping God are primitive, and childlike. Many people think of us as being ignorant by being here in this room this morning. It comes in versions like, I'm smart enough to get on without it. Instead of reading the Bible or gathering with other Christians on a Sunday morning, instead people open the New York Times and they read there to find their guidance. But the truth is, to be human is to worship. To be human is to worship. Human beings are whole persons made of a complex mind, soul, heart that is unseen and yet embodied. And this whole person is continually communing with something because it's impossible to exist without it. You cannot exist and not worship. The quest of the human heart is a quest of worship for everybody. That's true of the secular, that's true of the atheist, the agnostic, the Christian, the Muslim, the Buddhist, anybody, everybody. The question is, are you worshiping what makes you whole and builds you up, or are you worshiping what tears you down? Kent Dunnington has a beautiful little book uh, called Addiction and Virtue, where he explores addiction as worship. And shares this account of a paramedic friend that he has. His paramedic friend had a grisly experience of a heroin addict on the verge of death in an abandoned apartment building. And when he got there, the man was huddled in a corner, shivering and unresponsive. Surrounded by piles of rotten trash, used syringes, lighters, and a spoon. All the paraphernalia of heroin addiction. When asked what that was like, what was the experience like walking up to him? He said, for the first time, I fully understood what worship looks like. Worship is devotion. 
Worship is the giving of yourself to what you love. It's giving yourself in a way that you allow that thing that you love to take you over as well. It's not merely praise, but it's devotion. Expressed in thought, orientation, practice, song, and the effort to bring all of your friends into the thing that you love. The things we love and worship are the things that we gather others around. We say, you got to see this. You've got to enjoy this with me. You need to know about this. All of that's the verbiage of worship. Everyone worships. And since worship is all-encompassing, it's person-shaping. What you worship shapes who you are. It shapes your person, your intellect, your speech, your habits, your hobbies, your waking, your sleeping. It shapes all that you are. Psalm 66 is an invitation to worship God. It's an invitation to be shaped by the one whose image you are. The command of this psalm is this. Worship God completely. Worship God completely. If you take notes, that's the, that's the main thing that God is calling us to do today. We'll think about this in three ways. Number one, worship God, verses one through four. Worship God. Number two, worship God with knowledge. Worship God with knowledge. This is verses five to twelve. And then lastly, we'll look at worship God with your whole self. Verses 13 to 20. We'll get practical there as much as we can. Worship God with your whole self, verses 13 through 20. Let's think about worshiping God, verses 1 through 4. Let the whole earth shout joyfully to God, verse 1 says. Sing about the glory of His name. Make His praise glorious. Say to God, how inspiring, awe-inspiring are your works. Your enemies will cringe before you. Because of your great strength, the whole earth will worship you and sing praise to you. They will sing praise to your name. The whole earth is the Lord's. So the call to worship is extended to the whole earth. You can see it here in verse 1 at the beginning when it says, Let the whole earth shout for joy. It's, It's a call to the ends of the earth to shout to God in joy. Verse 4 continues the same theme when it says, The whole earth will worship you and sing praise to you. But you see it again there in verse 5 when it says, Come and see the wonders of God, His acts for humanity. Or your translation might might say the children of man. And then in verse 8 it continues, Bless our God, O you peoples. The audience of this psalm is the whole earth. God wants us to hear it. He wants us to know it. But he intends this to go out as a call to everybody that's alive. The hope and expectation of the Bible is that the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. This hope is sometimes expressed as a commitment from God that he will accomplish this. This hope sometimes expressed as a, at other times, as an obligation of the nations who are not yet submissive. So so sort of a call that you must obey, that the nations need to respond to. But on other occasions, it's an ongoing reality as though it's already the global situation. It's as sure as done 
So if you have an ESV translation of the Bible, verse 4 does it that way. They translate verse 4 as though it's already happened. And it says, the whole earth worships you, as, though, as, as if it's already going on. The truth is, is that it's a little bit of all of these. It's a call from God that extends the earth that everyone should respond to. The Creator is speaking. But it's also something that is our, is our joy, and it's, 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 it's a gift to us, and it's a, it's a warning to those who aren't yet submissive. But then the reality is, is that his worship, as it is spreading and as the gospel moves, all the ends of the earth are hearing of his son Jesus and are coming under him and praising and worshiping him as we are right here. In truth, this psalm is sort of describing an announcement that Jesus has ascended to his throne and the world can rejoice. Here it is. Here is this very summons to you and me to enter into the joyful worship of God through his son, Jesus. Now you wonder, how do we get to Jesus? Well, we'll see that. But just know that it is Jesus that God centers all of his worship on. I wonder if you've ever considered this reality that God summons you to worship He summons you to worship. God actually has authority to require us to worship him. And it is actually sin not to devote yourself to him. One of the things that we will be held accountable for, that all the earth will be judged for when we go before him, is is our failure to worship him. Romans 1 describes the way that we acknowledge God, we see him. We see in nature that he exists. We see that there is a creator, but we reject it. And then we suppress that truth. So there will be no one without excuse on the last day when we stand before him. And we will be held account. Did you worship me? Did you hear the summons and respect my authority and come to me? God has the authority. Just look at what happens when he shows his power in verse 3. It says, your enemies will cringe before you. In this way, the expansion of worship is, in fact, conquest. But it's much more than that. It's also liberation. I wonder if you've thought about the fact that God summons you. But I also wonder if you've thought about the fact that this is a joyful obligation. The summons of God is not to punish, but it is to give to us. Now, that's counter-thinking. Counter it's counterintuitive because you think of worship as what we give to God, and it is. But when God summons us to worship Him, that is a gift to us because we're worshipers. We're whole persons, mind, body, soul. We, we, are, we are incomplete without God. And as much as we live our lives not worshiping God, we live sort of in a vacuum, Absent from the one who makes us whole. Absent of our full selves. Absent of all that God is and wants us to be. But when we come to know him, it's joy that marks us. Notice the words that you see here at the beginning. Verse 1, shout joyfully to God. The one who's come to worship God. If you know the Lord and you allow the Lord's worship to come from you, it should have shouting. It should have volume. It should have some sort of passion. Many Christians lie about God as they refuse to give him passion. As they refuse to shout to God. But this verse says, shout. 
Shout to joy to the Lord with joy. It also says sing about the glory of his name. We sing all the time. People sing about, about things. They whistle, they skip, they get happy, and they, they do that in response to the things that fill them. Well, the worship of God is the kind of thing that fills us to the brim. And then it leads us, verse 3, to say to God, to, to just, just speak what we cannot hold in and say, how awe-inspiring all are your works. This is not the mumbled singing of people who find God boring and overbearing. What a lie about God. What about you? Do you worship? Do you give God this kind of praise? When you stand even in a congregation like this, do you think, well, I wonder who's watching me? I wonder if they see me singing. Or I don't want anybody to hear me. You know who needs to hear you? God. And you need him to hear you. Because all of that effort to make sure that no one thinks anything about you is the suppression of worship. And you're robbing yourself of joy. Because the worship of God is freeing. It liberates you. It frees you from the bondage of what people think. Of their attitudes about you. Of of having to be dignified. Of having, having people think well of you. Or to say, oh, they sing good. Who cares? God cares. He cares that you give yourself to him. And he's worthy of that. It's a summons. It's a joyful obligation. But it's also an invitation. I wonder if you thought about the fact that God invites you to do this. He invites you to worship. Think about this. It's an invitation. If you get an invitation from somebody, that means they want you there. Perhaps there's some oblig- uh, obligatory invitations that arrive from time to time. However, if you get that invite, it means your presence is desired. And God invites us to worship. That means he desires you, whoever you are. He desires you to enter into the worship of, of God. Isn't it interesting that God has authority to require, require us? But he actually appeals to us as moral agents, capable and will, of willing participation and joyful expressiveness. Isn't that interesting? God has all the right to summons, and that's it. Full stop. But instead of just doing that, he invites us. He says, come. He lets it be known, I want your presence here. Remember the parable Jesus tells of the king who sends out his servants to go and invite all the invited guests, and many of them don't show up. And of course, that's not worthy of his son's wedding. And so he sends them out and he says, invite everybody. Just go out and, and, and tell any and everyone to come in, come in. That's what God does when he summons us to worship. When he calls us, he invites you. And what does this tell you about the nature of God? I wonder how you think about God and what should change in light of that truth. Worship is a summons, it's a joyful obligation, it's an invitation, but it's also a generous gift. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, this is more central to the overarching ideas in Scripture about worship and idol worship and the worship of the true Son and becoming who God intends us to be. Our worship should have God at the center. He's the object of our devotion. So, 
of course, when we gather in these, in these assemblies, we try, to, we try to think about the songs. They should, they should be accurate. They should reflect what God says about himself. They should, they should speak the gospel. We try to s- sing scripture songs. So like this morning we sang Psalm 34, trying to sing his words back to him. We try to meditate on the gospel and let the gospel be central and always think about Jesus. We devote most of our time in here, as we're doing right now, to, to opening the word, hearing it, and thinking about what has God said. Because he should be central. That's why in verse 2 it says we sing about the glory of his name. We sing about glo- the glory of his name. When God summons us to worship, he's not merely asking us to show up and kind of come up with something. He wants us to show up and respond to his nature. Respond to who he is. So, so a, a public gathering of his people should reflect something of the character and nature of God. His name is who he is. It's his goodness. His love. It's his righteousness. It's his self-existence. It's his justice. His wisdom. His power. All that he is. When we sing about the glory of his name, we're just sort of ruminating on the nature of God. We're worshiping him. His name is the revelation of his essential being. So when we worship, we reflect on God as he is. Think about how you feel when you talk about something you love. Ever listen to a Celtics fan describe the hard drive to the hoop by Jason Tatum? It's something to behold, and it makes you smile. And if you're not the other team, you like it. Or you ever heard somebody describe the fish sandwich down at Dune Brothers? Can you see it? With that buttered uh, bun on both sides, on the grill just the right time, and the fish surrounded with all of the potato chip uh, breading that's, that's been put there, put together, overwhelming your hands and your mouth. Think about how you feel when you talk about a dream trip you once took. And as you talk about it, your mind goes back there and you sort of revisit it. And you're filled with the sights and the sounds and you kind of go there, both with longing to go back and fond remembrance of being there. Or ever listen to a mother bragging on her, on her son or daughter? To describe it and share it is to marinate in it and to share its joy with others. God's call to enter his worship comes because we worship many other things other than him. And when we worship the creation instead of the creator, we degrade ourselves because we become what we worship, as Greg Bill put it. Now think about it. This is all over the Bible. When Israel made the golden calf, right after that, as he's speaking to Moses, he describes Israel as if they have become a cow. These are the words that are used. He he calls them stiff-necked. And you remember as they go through uh, the wilderness and as they they fight Moses all the way, they're stiff-necked. Their necks are like that of calves. He also says that they were let loose. In their idol worship, as they made the calf and they rose up to play, they, they, they sort of let loose, so the gates flung open. He also says they turned aside from the way. So instead of going in the way that they should to the corral and, and make it back to the place where God would have them, they, they ventured off, off the path. And so they needed, another, another quotation, they needed to be gathered again in, in the gate. 
as Israel bowed down to their calf and said, this is the God who brought us up out of Egypt, they became like cows. In Isaiah's day, the people worshipped with statues. Statues that had eyes but couldn't see, ears that couldn't hear, mouths that couldn't speak. So Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, is told, go and speak to them and say to them, keep on hearing but don't understand. Keep on seeing but don't perceive. The people in Isaiah's day had become the statues that they bowed down to. When you worship, you become what you worship. When Paul announced the resurrection of Jesus in Athens, he, summons them, he summoned them away in Acts 17 from the times of ignorance to the God who made the world and everything in it. This is why it's loving and kind to do missions and share the gospel. We're told today that it's, that it's colonialism of, of a different brand. But the truth is, is that it's the most kind thing you can do is to speak to someone in captivity the freedom of the one true God. The heroin addict that I began with completely gave himself to his love and eventually is overtaken by it. This is worship that degrades. It's low worship. So it tears you down and destroys your life. But the high worship of the one true God gives you life. It builds you up. It reshapes your mind. And it brings you into the full image of God, which is the image of his son, Jesus. Worship is good. When God calls you to worship him, he summons you with authority. But he does it in love. He summons us in an invitation to be made whole again. To be liberated from the self-destructive worship of idolatry. And he invites you mind, body, and heart, to enter his life-giving presence. So you should worship God. And when you do, you should worship God with knowledge. Worship God with knowledge. That's the second thing that we see beginning in verse 5. Look again at verse 5. He says, Come and see the wonders of God. His acts for humanity are awe-inspiring. He turned the sea into dry land, and they crossed the river on foot. And there we rejoiced in him. The way that it happens, that God changes us and shapes us through worship, is with knowledge. The Christian is to have our minds renewed. One of the reasons you're sitting here and we're listening to a sermon from God's word is because the call to worship begins with respond with repentance and faith. But then it says, come And be renewed. Have your mind transformed through the renewal of your mind. Uh, So so God wants to expose us to himself. He wants to speak to us by his word. Tell us about the world that we live in. And he calls us to respond to that. And as we respond, he shapes us. So knowledge, the knowledge of God is very important. So verse 5 says, come, come and see. Come and see the wonders of God. I will tell you about them. This is also why it's a gift. This psalm invites the world into the knowledge of God by pointing to the works of God that he has done for the nation of Israel. And then in verses 13 to 20, by pointing to the works of God for an individual. So you'll see this movement here. Verse verse 5 to 12 is sort of looking at it big picture of what God has done in Israel. And then verse 13, he begins to shift and he gets very personal in, in his own life. 
Come and see the wonders of God at verse 5. You'll notice that in verse 6, the wonders he wants to talk about is specifically the exodus and the, and the entry into Canaan, the promised land. He's rehearsing what God has done in Exodus all the way through Joshua. But notice how verse 5 says it was an act for all humanity. Isn't that interesting? Maybe even confusing, right? I thought we were going to talk about Israel, but he says that this is his acts of God for humanity. Well, not if you understand that God was acting to intervene into humanity in order to save it. If you're following the the storyline of Scripture, you recognize that God has made the world and everything in it. He's made the nations of the earth. He's sovereign over them. He's confused their language so that they wouldn't uh, prosper in their idolatry, but so that they would be frustrated in their idolatry. And then he calls one man and he grows them in, him into a nation. But when he calls that man, Abraham, he says, I'm going to use you to bless, which is a, a, a word of salvation. I'm going to salvifically bless. I'm going to give myself through you. So the nation of Israel is very important. So when God saves Israel, it wasn't just to grab this people and say, okay, here's my special people. He did do that. But that was for a larger purpose. That's why it's, it's a work for all the world to know about. You remember when he was doing this, he says, he says to Moses, and then all of Egypt will know that I am the Lord. He says to Pharaoh, and then Pharaoh will know that I am the Lord. And then as it goes out, it's, it's publicized. He takes on the superpower of the time so that everybody knows about it. Think about any time, any time a war, I mean, you got a war right now with, a, with a, one of the superpowers of, of the global moment, right? If America were to fall tomorrow, everyone would know about it, not just because of CNN, but because everyone would know America has gone down. Well, he takes on Egypt. He takes on Egypt specifically in all of his sovereign providential workings so that the word would go out, there is a God in Israel. And that God is Lord. When he fought at at Egypt, all the plagues that he did, each one of them was targeting a God that Egypt worshipped. All ten plagues. The last one being the climax, the the, the belief that the firstborn son of Pharaoh is, is, is to become the heir of the throne and become the embodiment, the incarnation of God on the earth. And so the son of Pharaoh dies. Yahweh demonstrates his power, not merely to show that he's the one in charge, but to tell the world, I'm the one who made you. I'm the one you should worship. In a way, the events described in verses 6 to 7 describe God's ascension to an earthly throne, where as he goes on and he leads them into the promised land, he places Israel geographically in a central location so that all the trade that goes from Egypt to Mesopotamia and Asia and so forth and down to Africa would have to go through the central location of his people. Once again, so that all the world would know. The invitation to worship is an invitation to know him and his ways. Come and see the wonders of God invites each one of us to join in the rejoicing that happened there. That's why in verse 7, when, he, when the, the author says, He turned the sea into dry land and they crossed the river on foot, there we rejoiced. He's trying to bring us there. He's saying, come with me here. Enter into the praise that happened there. 
The rejoicing that happened there, that was for everybody. That was for all the nations of the earth. That was for you and me. So that when we see what God does for his people, we would say, God's works are awe-inspiring. You and I, in verse 8, are to add our life and voice to the sound of his praise. So what are his ways? What is it that we know? If If we're supposed to worship God with knowledge, and he wants to reshape our minds so that we worship him properly and become who he wants us to be in the image of his son, what are the things that we know? Okay, well, the events that he points to are telling us about that. Some events in history are told more than others because they matter more. Pearl Harbor, 9-11, 1776, the French Revolution. You might be tempted at times to wonder or to want other stories. You go, yeah, yeah, I know about the Exodus. Why does he always go back to that? But God has written the ones that you and I need in order to know him. He could have said a lot of other things, but he said what he said in Scripture because this is what he wants us to know. And we have everything we need in the Scriptures to tell us what we need to know about God so that we worship him rightly. What are some of those things? Well, the first one that we see is that he's acted in time and space to redeem from slavery and sin to idolatry. The salvation event of the Old Testament is the Exodus. God redeems Israel, he rescues them from bondage, and he brings them to the promised land. But even that is a shadow of what he does in his son, Jesus. Jesus is the salvation event of all time. Jesus came as God in human flesh to take on our sin so that he would die and redeem us and free us from the bondage of our idolatry. The, the, the absence of the knowledge of God would be remedied as, as Jesus would lay his life down, substitute himself, and send his spirit to all of his people that, re, that, that respond in repentance and faith. That's why the spirit's presence in our life is here. Remember, Jesus said, I won't leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. I will send another helper. The Spirit comes, and he guides us into all truth. What is that truth? It's the truth about God. If you're here today, this morning, and you are not a worshiper of the Lord, and you know that, God is calling you to enter into worship, and the way you do that is you hear that God has redeemed people from every tribe, tongue, and nation By killing his own son on the cross in the place of sinners. Sinners like you. And if you will admit your sin and and turn to him, the, the resurrection of Jesus, the life that comes through him, will be given to you. That same Jesus rose from the grave three days later and has ascended to the right hand of the Father. And he is reigning as king right now. And for all of us who are in Jesus, he has our name on his mouth. And he speaks it to the Father. And he intercedes for us. And he, 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 he liberates us from the bondage of our sin. And by his spirit, we're able to walk free in this world. That can be you too. If you just turn to him. He also rules providentially over everything hold, and holding accountable everybody who rebels against him. Notice there in verse 7, at the end, it says, The rebellious should not exalt themselves. In light of the reign of God, it is a fool's errand to resist him. Or as one man put it, no man ever hardened himself against God and prospered. If you're someone that's mostly seen the gospel and the Bible and Christianity as a point of interest, something to consider 
or just an intellectual curiosity, it's very important that you go beyond all of that and you actually respond. God doesn't say all of this just just for your information. (laughs) He's not giving us a heavenly FYI. He's calling us to respond. So you'll notice that it goes in both ways. It goes to the whole world to enter into worship, but it also goes to rebels and it warns them, don't do that. Be afraid. He also providentially provides and cares for his people to prosper. He actually works to prosper his people. Compare this with what happens to his enemies when they cringed in verse 3 and what he warned right there. But then look at verse 10. It says, For you, God, tested us. You refined us as silver is refined. You lured us into a trap. You placed burdens on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through the fire and water. But you brought us out to abundance. This is a very important truth. One of the ways that God deals with us, one of the ways that he works in our lives is that he tests and refines us to bring us to his abundance. He tests and refines us. Notice that God is the subject in verse 10 through 12. He's the one that did it. So Israel is saying, I felt like I was in fire. (laughs) I went through fire and God's the one that took me through it. I went through water, the, 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 the tumult of a storm. God's the one that took me through it. It says, you placed burdens on our back. You lured us into a trap. It just means that, that what he means by this is that we didn't know what was happening. We didn't know that this would end up like this. We didn't know this would be a trial because I wouldn't have come, God. Of course, he says, I know. It's an important truth most people get tripped up by at some point. Everybody here, no doubt, has been tripped up at some point or another by this. If you're a new Christian, let me just say to you, God is going to test you. He is going to try you. The things that are easy early on will become hard later. You won't avoid this, but it's because God has purpose. It's one of the ways he works. Because God loves us, God does not just redeem us. But he actually works in everyone's life in unique ways to shape us. I love this about pastoring. I get to see in my interactions with everybody, I get to see all these unique ways that God's working. Every time you and I come and we say, here's what's going on in my life. Listen, because what we're saying, here's what God has been doing. And it's all different. Yeah, similar in some ways, but generally it's different. We have different lives, we have different careers, we have different work, we have different neighbors, we have different kids, we have different family backgrounds, we have different upbringings, we have a different day. (laughs) And God is working in all of those things on purpose to renew you, on purpose to refine you, on purpose to bring you more of his son Jesus. The living God, think about it, he's alive. The living God doesn't just shape us as we worship. He's proactive in shaping us through trials of sanctification. So if you're going through a trial, I understand it might be difficult. But it is really helpful to realize and remember God does this with purpose in your life. Just look at those verses again. Verse 7, he says, you refined us. Or verse 10, sorry. You tested us. What does he mean? He says, you refined us as silver is refined. Through trials, you are refined. 
There's no other way. You don't get refined without them. So, so, so we really shouldn't even try to avoid them. We should embrace the trials that God's, God brings. Um, just, just look at verse 12, though. He says, you let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and water. But then look, but you brought us out to abundance. The testimony of all the saints is that the end result of God's trials and testing in our lives is that he brings us out. The other side of things is abundance. And so you can go through a trial knowing that that's where you're headed. It doesn't feel like that, though, does it? When you're in a trial, you think, well, this is the end. And it is in some ways. Perhaps it's the end of things that God wants to bring to an end. Perhaps it's the end of, 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 of a goal that we had that, that was a goal we shouldn't have. Perhaps it's just something better. He's just redirecting. There's all kinds of reasons God might do that. But if, if the Lord is your God, if you're in Jesus, what you know is you know his intention is the other side will be refinement and what he defines as abundance. The abundance at the end of verse 12 comes after the water and fire of the line above it. It never comes first. It, ne- it just doesn't. <laughs> this is a basic Christian truth that you have to have down. And sure, no one likes it, but no one escapes it. And some people fall away because of it. Remember the parable that Jesus told of the parable of the soils. Sometimes the word of God comes and it lands on soil, but it doesn't have a root. And so it might sprout up, but as soon as trials come, it withers away. And so we have to be on guard. We have to look into our lives. And that's one of the reasons you you actually want some trial in your life. Because it's a testing and refinement that shows whether or not there's roots. And you don't want to wait to the end to find that out. (laughs) It's better to find out now. And if God exposes that there aren't roots, you want to repent. You want to bring that to the Lord and acknowledge it. Lord, what I see is what you already know, and there's no roots here. Now, what do you know? Remember, we're thinking about worshiping God with knowledge, and we're thinking about how that knowledge shapes us and leads us to worship Him. Well, you know that if God, you know that God has revealed himself in scripture and there are lots of times in a trial when you're going to say, who knows what God is doing? All of us, all of us try to figure out what God's doing. Okay, that's natural. That's fine. You can ask God for that. But you don't always get the answer. And you look back sometimes, you go, I I don't know. I have no idea what that was about. And that's okay. Okay. So you say, who knows what God was doing? But you know what you don't say? You don't say, well, who knows if God was doing anything? That's what we don't say. We don't say, well, I don't know. It seems like a waste to me. All I know is God didn't do anything. All I know is God wasn't working. Because that's not true. That's not true. We know that that's not true. Because you know him, you know what he's done in the past... You know what, he, what the testimony of the saints is in Psalm 66, verse 10. And so because you know all of this, you know that what he's promised to do in the future. And so you know that you can trust him. When you're tempted to give up, 
you remember that he promised to be with us. Isaiah, or Isaiah 43 verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. The flame shall not consume you. So church, when we worship God with knowledge, the joy of being shaped by him leads to greater worship. So we should worship him. We should worship him with knowledge. And we should worship him with our whole self. That's the last more brief thing. Worship God with our whole selves. Look at verse 13. He says, I will enter your house with burnt offerings. I will pay you my vows that my lips promised and my mouth spoke during my distress. I will offer you fattened sheep as burnt offerings with the fragrant smoke of rams. I will sacrifice bulls with goats. Come and listen, all who fear God. I will tell you what he has done for me. I cried out to him with my mouth and praise was on my tongue. This last part is personal. And it's really helpful because it gives us a framework for what it looks like for you and me to worship. If I haven't said it or if you haven't picked up on it, worship of God is not just singing. This is no call to just show up to church. And I I trust that we all know that. What, What God is calling us to in worship is a whole life devotion. So what we see in this personal explanation at the end is an example of what it looks like to follow him in this way. And there are several things that you can see. You can see, first of all, that he does, he worships God completely. So that's the way we should worship him. He fulfills his vows. He offers that which is costly to him. And he remembers. He fulfills his vows. He offers what's costly. And he remembers. So he worships God completely. Verses 13 and 14 tell us that he made a vow in distress. He promised sacrifices and public praise in what must have been a desperate circumstance. And if you notice how much he offers here, this must have been a really bad circumstance. Because the offering that he gives is a really big offering. In fact, some commentators have pointed out that no personal uh, wealth could offer all this up. No one could afford to give all of this unless it was the king. If it was the king... The king could gather this up either out of his his personal resources as the king or maybe on behalf of the nation. Either way, the king here, if if it is the king, the king has been praying and in distress made a vow. God, if you get me out of this, I will worship you. I will give to you and I will make a big offering. I will sacrifice to you. But this tells you a few things. It tells you that praise to God does include cries of despair. The worship of God is not just all shouting and joy, but it includes the quivering despair of crying. And here is a brother who in some situation, in duress, cried out with tears and said, God, I need help. I need you. And that is worship. That is worship. It is the acknowledgement that God is the one who we should pray to. He is the one with power and authority. He is the creator, and we're just a limited creation without all the power that we, that we would want and that we'll, what we might need in a given situation. So you can pray to God. You can bring your whole life to him, not just all the positive, but you can bring the despair to him. It also tells us that you and I should recognize that it is appropriate 
to make thanksgiving gifts to God when he delivers you. I wonder if you think about this. Maybe there's been some season in your life that's been really hard, and through that whole season, you've just been crying to God. Maybe you made specific vows during that time. It is appropriate when you come out of that to acknowledge it with a gift to God. It is appropriate to say to God, God, you delivered me, and I want to I, I mark this. The Old Testament saints sometimes marked it with a stone. They would, they would raise up. You know, we sing that song, Here I Raise My Ebenezer. Uh, that, that's an Ebenezer. I'm, I'm putting up a stone of remembrance. Th- these are appropriate. Sometimes I think we, we tend to, to, to not think about that, or maybe that's been lost in a generation like ours. But worship is demonstrated with value. Worship is demonstrated with value. This is sort of the other side. When we talk about giving and, and just generosity, and how we, you know, Jesus says where your, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. This is sort of the other side of it. God, you're my treasure, and you deliver me, and I want to acknowledge that. So that means that when we offer to God, when we give thanksgiving to him, we shouldn't tip him. We shouldn't just offer up a, a, a tip. But you and I should plan appropriate thanksgiving gifts to God. Just think about that. When is the last time you made some, some, some gift to the Lord on the earth? And you said, because the Lord's been kind to me, I'm just going to do this as a worship to him. Well, you also fulfill what he requires and you promise. Sometimes we say things in duress and perhaps we don't mean them, but they actually have meaning. Deuteronomy 23, 21 says, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to keep it, because he will require it of you, and it will be counted against you as sin. How many times have people said, God, if you help me, I will follow you. You you can get all of me if you get me out of this. I will give you... Or, God, if you do this for me, I will speak to that person. And then it happens, and we just sort of mosey on, <laughs> sort of sneak out the back, or, or just sort of forget it and be like, well, the Lord, you know, you know. <laughs> but actually, we said something to God. We gave our, our vow to the Lord. We should fulfill it. And in fact, it's, it's not only right to do so, it completes the gift. It completes the gift. Just like with your children. Somebody gives them a gift, and your kid goes, wow, and just walks off. What do you think? You're like, excuse me. <laughs> I, I believe you need to say thank you. Well, we need to do that with God. It's right to do that with God. Kids, that's why you should say thank you when you receive something. It's also why you should plan to learn to give to God now. If you get a bag of candy and you you say, look at all this candy, and you're excited, I understand, I would be excited too. But one of the things you can do now to learn this is you can immediately think, who can I give some of this to? Who, who around me could I bless? And maybe you got at school and everybody got a bag. Okay, so nobody there. But as you leave, is there somebody you could give to? I saw one of the most amazing acts of generosity on top of a landfill in the Philippines with all these kids who lived there in squalor. And the, the group that I was with brought and gave some things in, as gifts, and some of that was candy. And one of the amazing things that I saw was that kids who got the candy, who were bigger because they could get there and grab it, And the little kids, they immediately turned and started handing to all the little ones around. People with nothing. 
And as they received, they didn't, they didn't hoard it and immediately stick it in their pockets. They looked around and said, who doesn't have? Isn't that beautiful? What a challenge. If you get the chance to make some money, you should think, I should, I should thank God and I should give to him out of this. Okay, I said quicker, so let me, let me speed up. Verses 16 and 17 tell us that it should be public. We should, we should give public praise to God. Answered private prayer, private answered prayer, should be praised publicly. Now, some things are maybe not appropriate to share with everybody, but you should tell somebody. It is right to tell people what God has done for you. It is wrong to hold that back and to hide it. You build other people's faith. You share the joy. You complete the thanksgiving. So don't keep silent. Give God credit. Parents, tell your kids what God has done for you and done in your life. They don't know. They weren't there. So tell them. Tell them again. If you forgot, it's okay. Tell them again. They'll tell you that you've already told them. And when you come here, sing. Sing. Look, if you're up here and you lead, you play one of these instruments, you should smile. I know you're concentrating sometimes, but smile. And when we're singing and we're facing this way, we should smile at them. If you ever see a drummer kind of doing this and just like looking around with a scowl, you should smile at that guy so that he'll smile back. And he'll remember the praise of God should be joyful. Verse 18 and 20 tells us that we should, we should worship God with private integrity. We should have private integrity. Notice what he says. If I had been aware of malice in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. However, God has listened. He has paid attention to the sound of my prayer. Blessed be God. He's not turned away from my prayer or turned his faithful love from me. This is saying that if I knew I had secret sin and I kept a hold of it, I grabbed it and I clung to it, God wouldn't have heard me. That might be a surprise as gospel people, but it is true. Remember what he says to husbands, not to be harsh with your wives, but live with your wives in an understanding way so that your prayers would not be hindered. God wants us to be on the inside what we act as though we are on the outside. He wants that. Whole devotion. Whole worship. That's why repentance is so necessary. The worship of God is not just outward conformity. It's integrity that shows itself outwardly. So church, hopefully you can see that worship is a gift. Worship is whole life devotion to God. It's the kind of worship that shapes us and builds us in Jesus and makes us whole. It's, it's whole life praise to God that involves our emotions, our prayers, our singing, our speaking to others, our treasure, and our integrity, our private lives. So let's worship God, all the earth. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would fill our hearts with the joy of the gospel. That you would teach us to worship purely and well with our whole selves and that you would make us into the image of your son, Jesus. Amen.